All right. Well, continue our worship this morning uh, through the preached word. We're in the book of Hosea. This morning, the book of Hosea. Hosea is right after Daniel. It's one of the latter books in the Old Testament. So it's right after Daniel, kind of getting close to, to Matthew there. Um, and that's, that's where we're going to be at this morning. Answering the question, how does Christmas show God's scandalous love and relentless pursuit of his people? I, um, we'll, we'll go through the text this morning, so I'm not going to read that just right off. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will, we will dive in. God, we thank you for this day, for this opportunity to gather together as a church to celebrate, Lord, to celebrate the birth of Jesus and to look at uh, your love for us, to look at your pursuit of us, God. Help us to see, God, just how radical this is, how shocking it is that, that, that you have loved us and that you have relentlessly pursued us, God. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christmas is less than a week away. Um, in fact, Christmas is on Wednesday. So if you guys have not done all of your shopping, you got a few days left, uh, maybe Amazon Prime could get it to your house, you know, before Wednesday, uh, but, but you're kind of cutting it close. It's Christmas. And every Christmas, we pause as a church to celebrate the birth of our Savior Jesus, right? I mean, we play music in our car. We play music at our home. I know that we've been playing, you know, Christmas music at our home. We've been playing Christmas music in our cars ever since the beginning of the month of December. You know, it's a, it's a good time for us to do that. We had our tree up right after Thanksgiving. And ever since then, we've been, we've been playing Christmas music. We host Christmas musicals like we did last week here. Man, they did such an excellent job. Amen? Amen. Last week, I mean, and we also talk and we observe Advent. Our scripture reading plans during this time of year, uh, they, they, they change slightly. We begin to focus on the birth narrative. We begin to focus on why Jesus had to come. And all of that is entirely appropriate, right? I mean, this is Christmas after all. Jesus is the reason for the season. Now, while that's true, sometimes I think that we can allow the sentimentality of the holidays uh, to consume us. Uh, to, we forget why Jesus had to come. We, we forget the scandal of it all, the shocking nature of it all. Or maybe you don't know why Jesus had to come or, or why it's scandalous or shocking that God would love us. And maybe you are here today because today is, frankly, the Sunday before Christmas. It is the time of year that you come to church, you come with your family, you go home, you have Sunday dinner with them. And then you do it all over again next year after you've heard a message about a little babe being born in a manger. Well, today is not one of those days. Yes, it is the Sunday before Christmas. Yes, it is an opportunity for you to gather with your, fam with your family, with your friends, to eat a good meal with them. Yes, we are pausing in our calendar to reflect on the birth of Christ, but we aren't going to do it in a feel-good way this morning. Instead, this morning, we are going to look at just how scandalous God's love is for us, just how shocking it is how he has relentlessly pursued us despite who we are. In order to do that, we're looking at the book of Hosea. Hosea is an interesting character. 
Hosea will be considered a minor prophet, and Hosea is not minor because, you know, he's not as good as the other prophets. Hosea, the only reason that he is considered a minor prophet is because his, the length of his book. It is shorter, shorter than prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah uh, and Ezekiel. Now, that doesn't mean that his message isn't any less than theirs. His message is a powerful message, and God has called Hosea to present a message, not only through speech, but also through his actions. And God does this from time to time. God will, will go to the prophets and he will use them to illustrate a message through their life. And so, for instance, he asked Jeremiah to buy and to bury, and then after a time to dig up a spoiled loincloth to visually show that God would, would spoil the pride of Israel. He had Isaiah walk around naked and barefoot for three years as a sign against Egypt and Cush to show that God would destroy those nations and that Israel should not chase after them. He had Ezekiel go and be shut up in his house and tied down and he became mute to show that Israel was a rebellious people. God asks the prophets to do a number of different things besides present his message verbally. He asks them at times to present his message through a picture. And so what did he ask Hosea to do? We well, asked Hosea to marry Gomer. And other than her name, you might not think, well, that's not really all that bad. I mean, that is until you learn her profession. So look at Hosea chapter one, verse two. When the Lord God first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go, take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. That's right, Gomer was a prostitute. And God asks Hosea to go and marry her. Now, I don't know what you think about Isaiah having to walk around, you know, naked and barefoot for several years. I don't know what you think about Ezekiel having to be tied up in his home. But, but to me, it seems like that might have been a better alternative than having to marry Gomer. I mean, imagine being Hosea. Imagine going to your family and to your friends with this news. Imagine calling up the guy who's going to be your best man. And you say, man, I'm getting married. And he's like, great, who are you getting married to? And you're like, I want you to be my best man. And he's like, I am marrying Gomer. And then the conversation takes a completely different turn at this point. I'm pretty sure your family and your friends would, you know, find it difficult to celebrate with you. I'm sure that they would think you are crazy. I'm sure that they would try to talk you out of it. I'm sure that they would tell you that, look, you're just asking for heartache. You're just asking for a lifetime of grief and sorrow. But you know, Hosea, he didn't listen to his friends and family. He didn't listen to his boys. He, he, didn't, he didn't do any of that stuff. Instead, Hosea listened to God and he took Gomer as his wife. Amen. And we see that in verse three. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And so he takes her as his wife, and then not too long after he takes her as his wife, they end up having a son. We're told in verse three, or told in verse four, excuse me, that, that his son's name is Jezreel. And so what's the significance of this name? Well, look at verse four. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And so Jezreel means punishment. And so essentially, God is telling Israel through the birth of Jezreel that he is going to punish the house of Israel. 
Now, after having Jezreel, Gomer has two more children, and because of her profession, we're not really sure if these are Hosea's children or not, but she has two more children, and their names are No Mercy and Not My People. You see that there in verses 6 and verse 9. So imagine, imagine being a teacher. I know that some of you are teachers or you've been teachers in the past, and so imagine being a teacher It's every single day you're calling roll in your class and you're like, no mercy, present. Not my people, present. Jezreel or punishment, present. I mean, these are pretty strange names and that would be pretty strange to have to do that every single day. But remember, Hosea's marriage, his life serves as God's message to Israel. And so as these people interacted with these children, his children, Hosea's children, as they, as they saw Hosea and Gomer together, they would know that this is a visual representation of God's relationship with them, of what God is going to do to them. It's not going to give them any mercy. They're not his people. Judgment is coming on the nation. Now, that's a harsh message. That's a, that's a harsh way to just to begin a book flat out like that. And so we have to ask why. Why is that? Well, it's because Israel is Gomer. I mean, they have been unfaithful to God. They have trusted in other nations. They have chased after. They have worshiped other gods. They have not given themselves to God despite the fact that God has taken them out of Israel. He has given them the promised land. They're continuing to chase after other gods. They think that these other gods are going to give them what they want. They have committed idolatry. They place their hope. They place their trust in something other than God. And that doesn't fly with God. You see, our God, the God that we serve, the God that we proclaim, is the creator of this world. And as the creator of this world, he says that we must worship him, that we must follow him. And we should worship him. We should follow him. And as you just look out at the sunset, as you look up at the sky at night, you see all of the stars, you see that that this God who has created everything, man, he has created some amazing things. He's creating you and I and everything around. And so he deserves our worship. And we don't want to give him that worship. Our God is a jealous God. In Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 2, we read, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation for those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who who love me and keep my commandments. Our God is a jealous God. Our God deserves our worship and our worship alone. Israel, God's chosen and holy nation, has not given that worship to God. They've chased after other gods. They've trusted in other nations. They've whored themselves out like Gomer has and just like we have. You see, we are no different than Israel or Gomer. We're prostitutes 
we are adulterers who have given our love and our affections to other things besides God. Sure, we might not go out and we might not cheat on our spouse. We might not bow down to stone statues, but we cheat on God. And we cheat on God by worshiping other gods, by worshiping the creation rather than by worshiping God. We worship idols. And you know what an idol is? An idol is anything that gets in between us and God. An idol is anything that we chase after more than we chase after God. An idol is anything that we worship that we would give our time and our resources and our money and our possessions. It's anything that we think that's gonna provide us with joy and fulfillment and happiness that's gonna fulfill us more than God. And we chase after that thing, whatever it might be, more than we chase after God. That's what an idol is. That's what it looks like to worship an idol. And we do that. And we can make anything an idol. When I began my first pastorate, there were a number of guys there who were really concerned that I got them out by 12 o'clock. Now, we started a lot later than we do here. We started at 11, and so we went for about an hour. Uh, So they were really concerned that I would get them out by 12 o'clock. And they expected that. And most of the time, that was the case, right? Most of the time, we got out by noon, and we were good to go. But there were some times, I might preach a little bit longer. And so they they would come to me, and they would say, you know, we're going to install a trap door behind the pulpit. (laughs) And and when noon hits, we're going to pull the lever, if you're not done, and you're going to disappear. The sermon's going to be over. We're going to get to go home. And while I wasn't the best preacher back then, it wasn't my inadequacy that that led them to say this, right? Instead, it was the Cowboys game. (laughs) And I know I'm stepping on some toes there, right? It was the Cowboys game. They cared more about going home and watching football than they did hearing God's word or fellowshipping with other people on Sunday morning. Sports are fun to watch. Sports are fun to play. But if we aren't careful, they can easily become an idol to us. They can become more important to us than God. But I don't want to just pick on the sports fans. I don't want to just pick on those who play sports. I mean, anything, anything can be made into an idol. And so think about your own comfort or think about money or think about fame or or prestige, right? If we're chasing after these things more than God then these things have become an idol for us. If we think that they're going to fulfill us and we think that they're going to give us joy, if they think that they're going to give us satisfaction and ultimate salvation, then these things have become an idol to us. About family, career, even our health can become an idol to us at times. We can, and many of us do, allow some of these things to become idols. We allow these things to come between us and God. We pursue these things more than we pursue God. We replace worship of God with worship of the creation. And when we do that, we are becoming idolaters. And we're good at doing this. It comes natural to us. It comes easy to us. John Calvin, one of the great reformers, once said, our heart is an idol factory. And I think that's true. We're good at pumping out little idols. And when we get done pumping out one, we pump out another one. We just go and go and go and go. Our heart is an idol factory. And so when you get right down to it, we're just like Israel. We're just like Gomer. We're prostitutes who seek out other lovers besides God. That's who we are. And because of that, 
We deserve God's Jezreel. We deserve God's punishment. We do not deserve God's mercy. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve to be God's people. We don't deserve for God to pour out his love on us. We don't deserve any of that at all. Instead, what we actually deserve is we deserve God's punishment. And while God has every right to do that, to send us straight to hell to destroy us, God doesn't do that. Look at the text starting in verse 10. After he presents this like gloom and doom message to the nation, he provides a glimmer of hope. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. God exercises mercy. Instead of destroying us, he pursues us. He draws us in. He makes us his children. He makes us his bride. He remains faithful to us even though, even though we are idolaters who continually pursue other gods. Even though we are not faithful to God, God remains faithful to us. And we see evidence of this. We see evidence of this in the book of Hosea. In chapter 2, Hosea comes to his kids in verse 2 and he says, listen, plead with your mother. Plead for she is not my wife and I am not her husband that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. God pursues us. God draws us back to himself. He even tells us what will happen if we don't repent, if we don't turn back, if we don't follow him, if we don't worship him alone. If we don't give that worship to him alone, we learn that idols do not produce what, they, what we want them to produce. We learn that, that, that idol worship is foolish. Idol worship is futile. We see that in verses three through seven there. You see, many of you, chase after and you produce idol after idol after idol because the one idol that you were chasing after didn't give you what you wanted it to give you. It didn't ultimately fulfill you. It didn't ultimately satisfy you. It didn't provide you joy past a few months or a year. Idols cannot ultimately provide for us. It's futile. It's foolish to continue to chase after them. And we're told that. God tells us that. You know, he tells us that in Hosea, but we see that in the book of Ecclesiastes as well. We see that all throughout Scripture. Chasing after anything besides God is futile and it is foolish. Well, even though Gomer's kids came and, and began to pursue her, she doesn't listen. She continues in her lifestyle. And oftentimes we don't listen. Right? Well, we continue down the wrong path even though we hear the truth over and over and over again. Right? Maybe you come here every single week and you hear God's word. Maybe you come here just once a year at Christmas time and you hear God's word. You hear that God loves you. You hear that God wants a relationship with you. You hear that God is pursuing you. You hear that God has made a way for you to come to him through his son, Jesus. And you still continue to pursue after the things of the world. You hear that there is only purpose in, in life, that there is only hope in life in Jesus, 
but you continue to seek after something else to provide you with purpose and hope and meaning in life. Even though you hear this week in and week out, even though these things continue to let you down week in and week out, you continue to pursue those things instead of turning to God. You see, we don't listen. We don't hear what God is calling us to. We don't turn. We continue to walk down a path that that is hopeless. And we do this week in and week out. And guess what happens? You end up like Gomer. You end up a slave. You end up a slave to these desires. By chapter three, Gomer is so caught up in her chosen profession that she finds herself a slave. She's being held. She's not free. She can't, she can't get out. She is there. She is held. She continues to walk in this path of hopelessness. There is no escape. There is no freedom for her. And if you're not a believer, that's the place that you're at. <clears throat> we often talk about the fact that I don't want to come to Jesus because I don't want to have to live by the rules of this book here. I want to be free. I want to be able to do things how I want to do them. Well, here's the thing. No one is absolutely free. Not in the way that we talk about freedom. No one is absolutely free. You're either enslaved to sin and Satan and your own sinful desires or you're a slave to God. No one is absolutely free. We end up being a slave to our own sin. We can't help but sin. We can't help but follow the path that Satan wants for us. We can't help but follow our own desires. We have no freedom from that. We have no escape from that if we are not following Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior. It controls you. It drives you. It makes you do the things that you do. It's not Satan. It's you. It's your own sinful desires that are pulling and tugging at you to do those things, to forsake God to chase after idols, to sin and rebel against God. And all of that's bad news, but there is hope. Seeing that Gomer is enslaved, God comes to Hosea at the beginning of chapter three and he says, go, in verse one, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. That's exactly what Hosea does, except this time, because his wife is enslaved, Hosea has to buy her back. And he says in verse two of chapter three, so I bought her back for 15 shekels of silver and a homer of lecheth of barley. Hosea buys his own wife back. And you notice he doesn't buy her back as a slave there. Instead, he buys her back as his wife. After a time, she has restored back to him in that way. And this is simply amazing. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, it's, it's hard to fathom that, that Hosea, you know, or that any man would do what Hosea has done, that he would, he would go and marry a prostitute and that he would continue to relentlessly pursue her, that he would go and buy her back out of this slavery that she has found herself in. I mean, it's absolutely amazing that Hosea would do this, but, God, but Hosea loves Gomer. It doesn't matter that she has abandoned him and the children. It doesn't matter that she has sold herself to other men. It doesn't matter that she has become enslaved. Hosea continues to pursue her despite all of these things. He does it because he loves her. 
And God does the same with us. Despite our adultery, God continues to pursue us. See, just as Hosea bought or ransomed back his wife, God buys us back. He ransoms us from his own wrath, from his own punishment. He does that not by forgetting our sin. God is a just and a holy God, so he can't just say, oh, we'll just set that aside. We're gonna, we're gonna forget about that. You're good to go. That's not what God does. No, God does it by sending his only son. And that's what we're celebrating this time of year. I mean, do you remember the first Bible verse that you ever learned? For me, it was John three sixteen, And I would bet for many of you, that was probably the verse that you learned as well. And how does it begin? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See, if you think about it, that verse should shock us. That verse should be scandalous to us. But for many of us, that verse has lost its scandal. It has lost its shock. We have said that verse over and over and over again so many times throughout our lifetime that we just don't see how absolutely shocking and amazing it is that God would send Jesus, his only son, to die for us, an adulterous people. But God did. God sent Jesus. God sent Jesus to an adulterous people, to a rebellious people, to people who pursue other gods so that he might call us to himself, so that he might make a way for us to have a relationship with him. And Jesus, Jesus didn't come as a good moral example, as just somebody that we follow and we step in line with Jesus and now all of a sudden we're on our way to heaven. That's not why Jesus came. He is not a good moral example. Jesus came so that he might die as our savior, so that he might die in our place. This is why Jesus came. This is why there was a little babe that was born in a manger. This is what we are celebrating this time of year. When we put mangers up in our front yards, we are celebrating God's scandalous love. We are celebrating God's relentless pursuit of his people. That's what we are celebrating this time of year. The Father sent His Son because He loves us. And when we think about that, man, that should break our hearts. We should want Jesus. We should desire Jesus. We should want to run after Him because the God of the universe, the creator of all things, has came, has come, and He has died for us. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. Jesus is God himself. God himself has come down from his throne. He was born a humble, a humble birth in a manger with animals all around because there was no place for him in the inn. He lived a humble life even though he's a king and he went to the cross and he died the death that we deserve. All for us. All for us. He has done that. Listen to what one author says. Christians proclaim the unthinkable. We believe that God became a man, the man Jesus Christ, God who cannot suffer and die, becomes a man so that he can do the incomprehensible. The God-man dies. In his son, Jesus Christ, the God of life and holiness, faces the reality of death and sin. 
What kind of God are we talking about here? He becomes a man not merely so that we might better understand his teaching, but that he might bring reconciliation. He dies that he might overcome sin and death. Are you beginning to see it? Are you beginning to see just how scandalous God's love is for us? How relentlessly he has pursued us? How shocking it is that Jesus is born in a manger in Bethlehem only to die some 30 years later for us as he hung on a cross absolutely naked. Shame was brought on him. Sin was brought on him. The Father's wrath was brought on him in our place. We are Gomer. We are Israel, but God relentlessly pursues us just as Homer pursued, is, pursued Gomer all those years, just as God pursued Israel all those years. God pursues us. And that's what we're celebrating this time of year. We are celebrating God's scandalous love, his relentless pursuit of his people. And so this Christmas, this Christmas, don't ch- chase after the things of the world. The world wants you to chase after the things of the world because they want to sell you things. They want you to think that that shiny new car or whatever else it is that you can place underneath your tree is going to do it for you. But don't chase after those things. Don't give in to the lie. Don't think that that just a new whatever is going to do it for you this year, that it's going to give you hope, that it's going to give you joy, that it's going to give you what you need because it's not going to give you any of that. It is foolish and futile to continue to pursue the things of this world. Jesus came for us. Jesus died for us. Jesus, God, loves us so much that he sent his son for us. And so this Christmas, look to Jesus. Unwrap the greatest Christmas gift that you could ever be given. Jesus, turn to him, believe in him, begin to follow him this Christmas.